Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is September the 13th, 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from California, where we don't have crime, only on the East Coast. Um, we've done some shows on true crime before. We did one with John Allure, um, who has a new book out, uh, Wish You Were Here, story of uh, his sister's murder. But we've missed, I think, the biggest crime or real crime story of all, which is celebrating tomorrow its 100th year anniversary, the, uh, the story of the Paul's Mills murder case. Um, and there's a new book out about it, um, appropriately enough, uh, to mark the 100-year anniversary, uh, written by my guest today, Joe, Joe Pompeo, who's also the media correspondent for Vanity Fair. It's called Blood and Ink, the scandalous jazz age double murder that hooked America on true crime. Joe is joining me from New Jersey today. Joe, uh, Shouldn't the book have come out tomorrow rather than today to mark the 100th year anniversary? You know, in a perfect world, but I think you'd have to change the publishing industry to get them to put, put things out on Wednesdays instead of Tuesdays when, when books yeah, all come amazing. out. It's uh, amazing. In 100 years, uh, I'm sure they were doing that 100 years ago, only putting books out on Tuesdays rather Maybe, than Wednesdays. Yeah. I don't know what's wrong with putting a book out on a Wednesday. Anyway, 100 years, Joe, since uh, that uh, murder was committed. And not much has changed, has it, at least in the real crime business? Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, the I think that the book, you know, it, it shows us a time in the, the 1920s that was in some ways similar to the world we're living in now. Um, you know, they were coming out of this this dark period where there had been this worldwide pandemic. They were, you know, had just grappled with with world war. And there were all sorts of innovations that were that were that were starting to pop up in this decade. Uh, one of these was the tabloid newspaper, um, which my book you know focuses on. We kind of look at this famous murder through uh, the story of the birth of the tabloids in New York, and I think we see a through line from what you know those you know what this how this tabloid culture began in the 1920s all the way through to today. Well, before we get to the tabloid culture, which you know very well, let's talk about the murder itself. Uh, it happened on September the 14th, 1922 in New Jersey, in Somerset. How far is that from where you're talking to me now? Could drive there in about 45 minutes. So um, could you be one of the, uh, the suspects, Joe? You know, I, I, I think at the time, probably no one from my neck of the woods would have been close enough to, to be able to, to pull off um, the murder. This was the time. It was, it was. It was still a pretty rural area, you know, New Brunswick, New Jersey, where all the characters in the book were from. This is uh, this is home to Johnson and Johnson. It's home to Rutgers University at the time. It was sort of like a burgeoning manufacturing town, but it was all it was surrounded by ultimately farmland and a very rural area. So this was a pretty small town, provincial setting. So if I could. If Agatha Christie had been American, um, and she did, of course, write about America, this would have been a perfect setting for an Agatha Christie murder, wouldn't it? 
I think so. You know, I, um, you know, I think uh, small community where everyone sort of knows one another. There's some dark secrets lurking right beneath the surface. Uh, so, and of course, those secrets are sexual. It's always sex at the bottom of everything. So, tell me a little bit about the case, the characters involved, uh, what happened. Yeah, so, we'll, well, let's start as we're talking about the anniversary. You know, and the, the the anniversary of when the bodies were discovered, which I guess is what you know, I guess uh, students of this crime would probably call the official anniversary. That was September 16th, 1922. There's this young couple that are walking down this, uh, you know, lonely dirt road that is sort of a notorious um, local trysting spot. It's like a lover's lane, which is another thing that was in the 1920s. Uh, you use this word trysting. Is that a polite word for something else? I mean, that is a yeah, euphemism. They, they were they were going out there to, to fool around. Um as people did, uh, you know, even uh, in the uh, 1920s, even you know, in the 1920s, I think, um, you know, petting parties and joyriding. These were actually some of the other things that that were amongst the many trivialities that came to define the decade. But in any case, this they, this couple is, is, is meandering along. They see what they think are uh, a, snoo a snoozing couple. The young the young girl says, look at those people over there. The guy says, you know, don't don't pay any attention. They make their way over to an, uh, a clearing a little bit away, and one thing leads to another. They they do what they have come there for. They emerge again on the lover's lane, and they notice that these this snoozing couple is still there. And the, and, and, and the, the girl says, "A long snooze, Joe." Right? Look at look at the bodies. They're they're just like when we saw them, you know. And and then they they creep over. They look closer. Very obviously, these people are not breathing. Uh, you know, they could see um, bullet wounds. They, you know, run out. They go to the nearest house and call the police. And that's how the whole and thing the, started. Right. So the bodies are discovered uh, on in a in a tryst, as you say, in a trysting spot. Uh, who were they? So it came to be known at first they didn't they didn't know right away, but they were pretty quickly identified as the Reverend Edward Hall, who was a prominent Episcopal minister at this church called St. John the Evangelist in New Brunswick, New Jersey. He himself was not, uh, you know, from wealth, but he had married into this very wealthy and prominent family. He married a woman named Frances Stevens Hall, who had these illustrious colonial ancestors. She had some ties to the, the Johnson and Johnson dynasty. She was an heiress. Um, her, her, her whole extended family lived in this wealthy enclave of New Brunswick, kind of like, you know, the Boston Brahmins of this. So sort of, and just to be clear, Episcopalianism was a sort of, was the, the high Anglican church in the United States. It was about as close to being Roman Catholic without being Roman Catholic. Yeah, I, 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 I'm Catholic and I always, I, I think they're kind of um, adjacent for sure. And um, the church itself, you know, was a, a kind of a collision of these two worlds because it had these rich and prominent people, but there was also, you know, more working class, families uh, that went to this church. And the woman was from such a family. Her name was Eleanor Mills. And she was a choir singer, uh, had this beautiful oh, wow. this soprano voice. She sang in the choir of St. John. So uh, it's quickly apparent that there's these two dead people. Their, their bodies have been posed in a, in a very affectionate, sort of intimate way. There are love letters between their bodies. The reverend's calling card has been placed near his foot. So there's no doubt as to you know, his identity when he's discovered. Um, so you have this prominent minister dead in the field next to a choir singer, these two people who are, are both married, but not to one another. 
uh, Eleanor Mills, her husband also happened to be the parish sexton. He was the sexton of, of, of St. John the Evangelist. So, you know, if you could just write a perfect murder scandal, this, this probably would have been it. Yeah, and Wikipedia even, because in the way that Wikipedia does, has the victims listed and also the suspects. There are, at least according to Wikipedia, four suspects. Is that fair? Carpenter, Hall, Stevens, or two Stevens? So uh, who, who were the people most um, most uh, uh, logically associated with this murder? So most logically associated, you know, on the one hand, it would be the husband, um, the, the, the cuckolded widower, but he had a pretty decent alibi. The, the authorities never focused on, on him too much. I mean, they did grill him right away. They interrogated him. There were suspicions about him at different points throughout the case. But, you know, over the four years that this saga unfolds, uh, mm. it's, it's really Francis Hall, the widow, her two brothers, Henry Stevens and Willie Stevens, and a, a cousin of theirs who also lives nearby. His name is Henry De La Briere Carpenter. He's, he's a, right. a stockbroker in New York City. Um, listed uh, on Wikipedia. And so were they all... Um... Was it all, uh, were they all suspected of revenge of some sort or other? Well, you know, the reason they became suspects is because this, you know, this witness came sort of out of nowhere at, at a point where the investigation was sort of stagnating and there was a lot of pressure to solve this case, but the authorities didn't have anything to go on. And they had, they had so bungled the, you know, the initial, um, you know, uh, the, the crime scene investigation by letting people trample all over the bodies and they didn't secure any evidence. I mean, they, they just did a, a pretty poor job from the beginning and there was a real outcry. People wanted to solve this case. So, you know, lucky for them, this, this woman comes forward. She's a pig farmer. She owns this farm that is adjacent to the farm where the bodies were found. And she comes forward with this kind of fantastical story about how she'd been out riding on her mule late at night and stumbled upon this, this murder scene. And she told like a bunch of different versions of this story, but the contours were the same that she, you know, uh, was out in this field late at night and heard arguing and heard four gunshots. And she heard a woman cry out, Oh, Henry. So, you know, that, you know, there's two Henry's in this, in Francis Hall's immediate family. So she, she basically in a nutshell is the one who places these people at the scene of the crime. And that's why they became the center of the whole investigation. But was the crime ever, quote unquote soul did anyone ever go to to trial so in 1922 when this first happened there was a grand there was a grand jury and it relied heavily on this this woman the pig woman as newspapers called her it relied on on her testimony and she wasn't the most credible witness and the prosecution just and it didn't do a good job it sort of fizzles out it comes back four years later because this this tabloid newspaper um uh ultimately brings the case back and it does go to trial. And all this time, all four of those individuals are indicted. The all only them, uh, Carpenter and then Hall and the two Stevens. That's right. And one of the nuances is that Henry Carpenter, the cousin, uh, he was to be tried separately. So the trial that happened in 1926, which was this huge trial of the century, this huge media spectacle, the people who were who were tried were Francis Hall, her brother, Henry Stevens and her brother, Willie Stevens. A lot of murders have been committed in the hundred years between then and now, Joe. Uh, so what? So what's the big deal? I mean, you're, you're, you're the subtitle of, of your book, Blood and Ink, is the scandalous jazz age double murder that hooked America on true crime. Is that its real legacy, its real significance? Well, that I think that, you know, America? 
a lot of murders were committed before this too, right? And there was a lot right. of murders that, that yeah, were newspaper sensations. In the context of that, in, I'm not sure how much research you've done on this, but was the murder rate higher then in America than it is now? It was. I do have some stats on that in the book. The 1920s, this was a huge crime decade. You know, this was the era of prohibition, which had this sort of trickle-down effect. You know, this was a, 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 a time where the political climate in America was, you know, encouraging temperish. They ban temperance, they ban alcohol, but that creates this sort of underground backlash. So you have all these crime rings and bootleggers and the murder rate ticked up to, um, uh, you know, a, a, a very a very substantial rate. And it was a time that there was just, you know, there were gangster shootouts, there were, you know, all, all this stuff happening. And, you know, that was all of interest to newspapers, but they were especially interested in, in, you know, domestic crimes, you know, and there was murders or, you know, there was divorce scandal. I mean, the, the public was just eating all this stuff up. It was selling newspapers and they really went to town with it. And I think that's, that's been the case you know, there was there was sensational newspaper crimes in the 19th century at the turn of the century with the yellow press. But what's new here um, is this new form of media, the tabloid newspapers. They, they were born in this era that this was a new innovation. It was a new medium. It was all about, you know, thrilling readers and bringing them entertainment. And they and they, they used phot photography in a way that had never been done before. You know, so these were papers that they were especially attuned to you know, all the lurid elements of a story like this. And they were, you know, drawn to larger than life personalities. And, you know, celebrity culture was huge in this era. And these newspapers, they took, you know, they put photos and they, they blew them up on the front of the newspaper and they made it a really sort of enjoyable, lively experience. This is the birth of, of essentially our tabloid media. Um, and, you know, I think that that was new. And I think that is, you know, what eventually gives us you know, that, that brings us to the National Enquirer. That brings us to things like court TV. And that brings us, you know, ultimately to, you know, in a way to, to Donald Trump. He was, he was also this larger-than-life personality that was, that was born and, and was created by the myth-making of the New York tabloids, including the Daily News, which was the first tabloid in America and one of the ones that really, you know, first was covering this case in a big way. So I think that that is what's, is what's distinct about this era, this new type of medium this new type of, of newspaper that is really, you know, exciting and and uh, tapping into something that people wa wanted at the time. So perhaps, Joe, um, the real victim of this murder was was truth or journalistic objectivity. Surely uh, the American media wasn't much more responsible before this murder than after. What came before tabloid newspapers? You said the 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 um the one pages but they weren't any more respectable or serious were they you know the, the penny press that was also you know a really considered a really down market type of, of newspaper and this goes back to i think that the 1830s and this was an innovation where you know by and large the newspapers of the day were you know commercial and trade-based they cost six cents they were really only accessible or of interest to the upper classes and, and businessmen and, and things like that. And, uh, you know, the penny press came along, you know, newspapers that cost one, one cent and they are now, you know, covering things that are of interest to everyday people, to common working class people. So, of course, things like, you know, murder are going to be very much on their radar. You, you fast forward into the 1800s, you get the yellow press, you get the Hearst newspapers, you get um, the, the Pulitzer's New York World and you get 
Hearst's American and his, his, his evening journal, they, they pioneered yellow press, this really like, you know, emphasis on sensationalism and, you know, all these things were, were predecessors uh, to, to the tabloids. Um, but it wasn't until the Daily News was founded in 1919 that we officially got, you know, what is a true tabloid sort of newspaper. And, you know, people use that word to describe just, you know, in general, these sort of, you know, more, more, more gutter newspapers or down market newspapers. But at the same time, these were making news and reading more accessible to more people and, and to people that, you know, were more marginalized. And these were something that, you know, less literate readers can now have access to and, you know, have their own, own sort of media that was, you know, not just this highfalutin stuff that you would read in, in the commercial and trade press of the day. Was that political critique of this, particularly from the left, from editors, for example, at working class newspapers that wanted to focus on real issues rather than uh, sensational murders, issues of pay and strikes and unions, because this was a time of great labor unrest. I mean, it was, and I want to get back to this idea of the jazz age, but it was a, a particularly um, dramatic period in American capitalism. When I think that, you know, the Daily News especially, I think that they were in tune with, with, with that constituency. You know, and Joseph Medill Patterson came, he was the founder of the Daily News. He comes from the famous Medill family that controlled the Chicago Tribune at the time. They were very wealthy, very conservative, but he was this sort of renegade in the family and he had dabbled in socialism and he very much believed in, you know, the working man and, and, the, and the common people and the masses. And he made this newspaper for them. And I think that his sensibility was very much, you know, in tune with, with, you know, uh, I think people in that sort, sort of class, what they, what they were, you know, he, he specifically made a newspaper for the masses, for the common people. Mm. There was, there was definitely a criticism of the tabloids. And I, I don't know if it's the liberal criticism, but the sort of highbrow press of the day were very sneering about it. So like, you know, they've had at the same time, publications like time and the new yorker i mean they, they were coming on the new the yorker and, started at that time but even they ran with it i mean they ran know, with he, it yeah so i mean it wasn't as if the 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 new yorker wasn't quite as highbrow or as snooty as it is today I'm it was pretty you know it was pretty it's it you know the, the, it covered the emergence of the tabloids in the in, in um yeah. in 1925 and it was very sneering about them it was kind of like looking down from the ivory tower because it was that certainly it, hasn't changed in 100 years has yeah. it <laughs> Well, so, yeah. so you, you've looked at this with, with with a great deal of detail. The book's got great reviews. You you've got a starred review on Publishers Weekly. They love the book, and it's going to be one of the the bestsellers. Maybe they'll even make a movie out of it. But what did you you've looked at it very carefully? Did you conclude that America got hooked, or these working class Americans who suddenly had access to what you call tabloid newspapers, did they get hooked because of some sort of conspiracy by the editors or the owners of this media or were they just uh, responsible for their own inanity what was your conclusion on that i think everyone was i mean america was hooked on this story whether they were reading it in the tabloid press or the new york times you know the, the new york times wrote more than anyone about this about this crime i guess it's like yeah. trump as well everyone's obsessed with it everyone's obsessed with it it's serious it's, than others it's the classic sort of, you know, high low. And there's a, there's a great quote in the book. Um, the publisher at the time of the New York times, Adolph Oaks said of the Hall Mills case when, when 
um, when the daily news prints it, it is sex. When we print it, it is sociology. So again, there's that kind of like ivory tower, um, you know, looking down on the, on the lowly gutter press. But I mean, this was of the, the 1920s, this decade that spawned, you know, countless sensations and countless obsessions, you know, just before the Hall Mills uh, murders in 1921, you had fatty, the Fatty Arbuckle scandal yeah. and manslaughter trial. You had, you know, it was just a decade where there was just like one after the other, there were sensations and it wasn't all crime, you know, like when, when Rudolph Valentino died, the famous actor, that was a huge, you know, media spectacle and especially something the tabloids were, were all over, you know, they were covering boxing, Babe Ruth. I mean, but, but crime, there was, there was just like one sensational thing after another. I think this was the biggest, the biggest one, you know, this was, it took place, it kind of, it stretched out over four years. Um, you know, it really was like the OJ Simpson of its, of its day. So I think that you know, this wasn't the only thing that was hooking readers on crime at the time, but it was the biggest one. And there's no doubt that the country was paying such close attention to this, that you even had people, actual celebrities that were commenting on it. You know, there's a, a newspaper interview F Scott Fitzgerald gave where he's, he, he's asked to name, you know, some of his favorite duos. And on this list, he includes the pig woman and her mule, which is from the story I told you about this, this witness account in the mule ride. So, I mean, it was, it was just undeniably something that completely just captured, you know, it took America, the American re reading public by the throat and held it captive for months. You mentioned F. Scott Fitzgerald, of course, his great book, The Great Gatsby, um, captures in a fictional way that the jazz age better than anyone else. Did novelists get hold of this too, Joe? Were there, I mean, yours is obviously a nonfiction book, and I'm sure other nonfiction books have been written about it. Yeah, but one thing I want to say really quick, but since you bring up The Great Gatsby, there's a book, there's a nonfiction book from a few years ago about the writing of The Great Gatsby. It's called Careless People. The author's name escapes me at this time, but she's, she's British. And it's a great book about the writing of The Great Gatsby. And it's also about the Hall Mills case. And the author makes a case that you know, from looking through through Fitzgerald's archives and and details like uh, like I just mentioned about you know name dropping this 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 witness in a newspaper interview makes a case that uh, the, the the Great Gatsby was was influenced by the extent to which he was following the Hall Mills case. But to answer your to answer the question you asked me, um, yes, there was there was fiction that was pretty quickly inspired by this case. There was a pioneering, one of the first pioneering courtroom novels called the, um, the Bellamy Trial, which came out in 1927. That was written by a reporter who had covered the Hall Mills trial just the year before in 1926. There was a couple of other, you know, fictionalized mystery novels over the years, pretty obscure now. There's one called The Street uh, by, there's one called The Crime by this author, Stephen Longstreet, who was a prominent jazz critic and, and playwright. He was from New Brunswick and, you know, so he was very attuned to the Hall Mills saga. He wrote this book uh, called, called The Crime, which is based on it. Yeah. And there's another one that was written in 1927. Very obscure, kind of like obscuro mystery novels. Um, right. They're still doing, uh, well, they're doing walking tours now, I found from uh, one of the New Jersey uh, newspapers. Walking tours with new evidence of um, the murder sites. So people are really interested in go to New Jersey and, and walk around where this murder happened. Um, did you find anything new for the book, Joe? Did you turn anything up? No, like, you know, no smoking gun here. There was, there was some new, you know, very miraculously as I was doing the research, you know, one of the things that, you know, when I first was looking at the, what, what still exists today um, that's archived from prosecution files, um, you know, what's, what, what was missing from this trove that has, 
witness lists and some detective correspondence and the autopsy reports and the love and the actual transcripts of the love letters that the victims wrote to one another. They didn't have when I was first looking the you know, like the witness interviews and the, the and depositions from, from the original case or from 1926, you know, like the things where the, the, the investigators would have actually been asking people right after this happened, you know, um, uh, probing questions. And I was, I, you know, started doing the proposal. I was pretty far along and, and at, at in the spring of 2019, I found out this library in New Brunswick, New Jersey had like come to possess this long lost trove of, uh, witness statements, depositions, grand jury transcript from 1922, and then the same, all of the the same depositions and and witness uh, interviews from 1926. So that was a new, you know, piece of archival material, thousands of pages and all of that that kind of surfaced, and I had that to work with. And there, you know, there's nothing in there that was like had the answer, the solution to the crime, but it did have a level of detail you know, in terms of like building narrative and scene and, and characters and, and, you know, just physical detail and gestures. I mean, it had a level of detail that hasn't been uh, accounted for in, in the, some of the earlier books about this case. And I think also, you know, I, I did uncover a lot about the extent to which the tabloid press directly intervened in this case. It's kind of known, probably even if you look at, at the Wikipedia page, you'll see you know, the case, you know, was kind of went away until this newspaper, the Daily Mirror revived it. And I, I was able to find a lot about that story and this, this crusading swashbuckling tabloid editor named Phil Payne and how they actually went about that and how this war between these three tabloids in New York that existed by 1924, you know, how really they all were, were, were bent on trying to bring this case back because they know that they knew what it would meant for their circulation. So that narrative, I think, is new. And there's a lot of you know, mm. stuff that's never been published or told before, sort of from, you know, the, the, the media side of the story and, you know, the, the lens of looking at this through the lens of the tabloid press. Joe, the subtitle of the book uh, uses the phrase, the jazz age, the scandalous jazz age, double murder. Um, so there's a, 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 a musical background to this. Did it get onto the radio? I mean, obviously not television was not a developed media, but radio was in its... I wouldn't say it's infancy. Did, did this mark any kind of new media? Uh, you're at Vanity Fair. You're online all the time. We're doing this interview online. Obviously, media's changed dramatically since then. Uh, did this play out in new media terms back in the 20s? This was really, I mean, by and large, this was a newspaper crime. I think there was, you know, radio was in, in its infancy. I think that, I think that the, like, uh, years later, by the time of the Lindbergh, um, case, which happened pretty close by. It happened about 20 minutes away from, from the Hall Mills mm -hmm. saga. I think that was like a time when radio was really um, breaking through as a medium. There was news, you know, news wires were able to transmit. Like, there was news syndicates. There was actually uh, some, some footage and you could find in, in, in Getty images. They have this fascinating newsreel footage. But that would have been a major way the story was told. I mean, by and large, this was a newspaper story. There's, there's no doubt about it. And the reason it became so monumental at the time was because of the, the volume of newspaper coverage. And I think that the new, the new medium, the new innovation, it would have been the tabloid newspapers, the tabloid press. That was, that's what's, what was new in the, in the media culture of the time. Yeah, so then there was a jazz subtract, uh, 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 soundtrack, but people wouldn't have heard it. Uh, so finally, Joe, 
who did it in your view? You know, so I, I and, put me uh, on the spot. You know, was it, the, um, was, was it the chaplain? Was it the I cousin? Think, was it the husband? I think if you read the book, you know, my, so my, my opinion on this is that, you know, th there's, there's so many details. And once you read, you read the book, you will probably find a reason to argue against, you'll find something to well, argue against any suspect. Book, That's given. It's a great book, Blood and Ink. But in your view, who, who, who committed the murder? Yeah, I believe the family, you know, that went to trial was, was, was somehow involved because there was the one thing that, that, that is true here is that there was always, all the smoke was always around them and everything. I mean, there was just so many things that pointed to them that it can't have all been made up too many suspicious things, even though it's all circumstantial, even though we don't have, you know, a definitive piece of physical evidence to link these people. Um, I just feel like that there was too much smoke for there not to have been some degree of fire. Um, if yeah, the only thing that's missing from this is a racial element. Had they been black, of course, they would have ended up in jail. There is a there, there is a ra there is a racial element. You know, there's there's some there are some racial overtones to, to this story because the the, the brother of uh, one of the brothers of Francis Hall, his name was Willie Stevens, and in the earliest identifications by the pig woman, she described seeing what she described as as a colored man. You know, this is what they would have said at, at the time, and 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 in the trial, you know. His his appearance was 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 taken note of, and the prosecutor actually, you know, basically accused um, him of being a, a bastard, uh, having a you know this and this is to, for, for a very wealthy, you know, um, family of the Victorian age. This is precisely the type of thing that they would they would be horrified by. But he he kind of suggests that he he asks at, during the trial the exact words he uses was when he's interviewing. Uh, when he when he's grilling um, the other brother Henry Stevens, he said, "Is your brother was he was he not born by a mulatto because he had this darker complexion?" You know, so so there was an element where race did play into this, and also there was an element where, you know, one of the more discounted but nonetheless you know real theories that has come into play is that you know could the Ku Klux Klan have been involved in this? And that's you know at the time they were resurgent in New Jersey, right? Um, and they were you know this was. You know, we think of the Klan now, but we think of it really just in racial terms. But at the time, they were they were pursuing vi vigilante justice against moral Is crimes. Is it possible that Trump was involved, Joe? <laughs> you know, I, I um, if he was alive back then, who 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 knows? But I'm um, sure I wouldn't have put it past him. Anyway, it's a wonderful story. It's got everything: tabloid sensationalism, murder, sex, the racial card. Blood and Ink, Joe Pompeo's new book, The Scandalous Jazz Age Double Murder That Hooked America on True Crime. It will hook all of you. It's going to be a bestseller. Congratulations, Joe, on that. What else are you reading these days? Right now, I'm reading the new book by Damian Lewis called, well, in America, it's called Agent yeah. Josephine. I think we had Damian on last week, and actually, I, I thought oh. of bringing, uh, bringing um, Agent Josephine up because uh, she probably didn't commit the murder, but it was a similar world in some ways, a world that she, of course, left. Absolutely. And she she makes she's mentioned in my book briefly because there's a the, the daughter of the murdered uh, choir singer. She, be, she adopts the flapper lifestyle, and she very much... Is you know she 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 assumes that sort of identity and is representative of the of the change and the kind of revolution for for women that was happening at the time. But I'm reading I'm reading Agent Josephine and I find that um, very poignant. I mean, we're at this moment where there's 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 a number of books that are sort of like 
very well timed for a moment where we're grappling with this like fragility of, of democracy, you know, and I think that, you know, uh, Agent Josephine, I, I'm only about a hundred something pages of the way in, but, you know, we're, 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 you know, we're, 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 we're reading about, you know, the, the, the dark dawn of, of, of the Nazis and fascism. And, and similarly, I just read recently um, last call at the hotel Imperial by, I believe it was Deborah Cohen. That was about famous, these famous war correspondents of, World War II, H.R. Knickerbocker, um, John Gunther, Jimmy Sheehan, and Dor Dorothy Thompson, who were like running around Europe and they were, you know, interviewing, they interviewed Hitler. They were, they were kind of chronicling this rising, creeping authoritarianism in Europe. And I think those two books, I think, are very poignant with this moment we're at in, in politics uh, today, you know, with sort of the extreme elements of the Republican Party, not just in, Mer in America, but what we're seeing in Hungary and um, you know, this moment heading into this next election. And I think that th those books kind of, you know, take us back to a time when that was also something that felt very scary and sort of foreboding for people. 